Uh, we sang that song on Wednesday in youth group, and somebody asked the question, what does the word laud mean? L-A-U-D, haste, haste to bring him laud. And out of 30 people in the room, including the leaders, no one could say what the word laud meant. How many of you know what the word laud means in this room? I'm just curious. It means praise, basically, uh, but singing some old words there. Maybe we should look up those songs sometimes before we sing them. Would you pray with me as we turn now to God's Word? Father in heaven, we come humbly before you, and we ask simply that you would speak this Word to us, make it live in us, and make us more like Jesus today. He is our master and our goal, our vision and our life. Amen. So it's a little bit ironic that here I am now preaching a, an Advent, a Christmas sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, because when I was growing up, and especially in my early years as a Christian, I was a bit of a bah humbug. I was kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge kind of guy. Uh, so I didn't grow up as a Christian, but when I was little, I very quickly uh, came to the place where I didn't like Christmas all that much. At first, I would get excited about presents, right? It's great to get presents when you're a little kid. But I noticed that what happened around Christmas is I would I'd be excited to get a gift, and I would get it. And then, of course, just a few hours after I got it, usually, or shortly thereafter, I would be bored with it and looking on to the next thing. And so it wasn't very satisfying. And I also noticed, as some of you may have noticed, that families, when they get together around the holidays... They often have conflict and fights, arguments, and I didn't like that. And then I noticed how Christmas was, you know, I think when I was two years old or something, I told my mom that Santa Claus wasn't real. I said, that's not the real Santa Claus. And I realized that there wasn't a Santa Claus, and so the whole thing seemed like a big uh, lie to me. Anyway, and then when I became a Christian, I became even more against Christmas because of commercialism and things like that. And so I was a bit of a, a bah humbug, an Ebenezer, Ebenezer Whiting, I guess you could have called me. But I've changed my mind. And so here are some reasons why. And I'd like to start out just by saying a little bit about Christmas as an introduction today. So what is Christmas and why do we celebrate it and should it be celebrated? You probably know that Christmas is not actually something uh, in the Bible that we are meant to celebrate, or that we're said, we're told to celebrate in Scripture. It's not a festival that was celebrated by the earliest church, or Jesus, or any of the apostles. Uh, Christmas is the time when we celebrate Jesus' birthday. But, let me ask you this, is it Jesus' birthday? How many say, yes, Jesus was born on December 25th? Whoa, wow, you guys are so good. How many say no, he wasn't born on December 25th? Okay, well, you know, the truth is, right, we don't really know, because the Bible doesn't say anywhere where, when Jesus was born, and it's possible that he was born on December 25th, but it's very unlikely. There are a number of pieces of evidence that would suggest that he wasn't born in the winter, and the strongest one is this, that in Luke, in Luke chapter 2, we see that the shepherds are in the fields with their sheep. 
The shepherds are in the fields with their sheep. Now, it doesn't get as cold in Israel, in the Middle East, as it does here or other places. But we do know from people who have studied these sorts of things that it's very unlikely that the sheep would have been out in the open fields during the winter. And so it's probable that Jesus was born even any other time of year, spring, summer, fall, but not the winter. So why is it that we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? And I want to say that the reason is because Christians like to take over holidays. Christians like to take over holidays. Jesus was a master at teaching from the things that were right around him. You see this all through the Gospels. He'll, he'll see a situation that someone is in, or he'll see just something in nature, and he will use that to bring a very relevant and impactful message to his disciples and the people who are listening to him. And so the apostles and Christian teachers through the ages have tried to do the same thing using Jesus' method. Whatever is available in the world, in life, in culture, we take those things and we use them to speak the message of the gospel because that's how you reach people. And so the church has always, or for a long time, done this with various holidays. Of course, there were holidays celebrated on December 25th and right around there, which is near December 25th, is the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. There were holidays celebrated around that throughout the ancient world and especially in Europe. And the reason there, I think, also had to do with pagan religions, but it had to do with just the bare fact that it is dark in the winter, right? It's dark in the winter, and it's very depressing. And so many people in places where it gets dark in the winter celebrated that time with a festival of lights in some way. And those were caught up in pagan religions and in lots of bad things, but the fact that they had a festival, a big party, at one of the most depressing times of the year, that's a good thing. And so the early church, instead of trying to get rid of it or just say it's bad, they took it over and reclaimed it for Jesus. They didn't know when he was born, so they said, let's take this day when we celebrate the light entering the world at the darkest time, the time when the sun begins to come back. Let's celebrate that as Jesus' birthday, the time when light entered the world at the darkest moment, the turning of the tide. Today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. And I would encourage you to get out your Bible because we will follow along with the text quite closely. But before we actually go into the text, I want to give you right up front what is the main point of this message? What is the main point, I think, of the text in Isaiah chapter 9? And here it is, so you, don't, you can't walk away and say, uh, he talked about a lot of things, but I don't know what was his point. Here's the point. Jesus is able to rule the universe and really fix things through the spiritual powers of love and peace instead of the human powers of control and violence. Love and peace instead of control of viol- and violence is his power He is the prince or the ruler of peace. The prince or the ruler of peace. Now I got a picture of a gun up here for you. 
in just a minute. A picture of a gun that says peace underneath it. Does anybody know what this gun is called? It's a Colt 45. It's the gun that won the West. Anybody know what it's called? What's its nickname? The Peacemaker. That's right. This gun is called, was called, is called the Peacemaker. Jesus encourages us in Matthew chapter 5 to be peacemakers. And this is the vision that our world has of a peacemaker. Peace is a very loaded word in our world. It can mean being kind to people, or it can mean destroying them so that there is peace. Let me read for you again this first section in Isaiah chapter 9, the section with the difficult words in it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, that is God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Now, when we read Isaiah the prophet, maybe many of us don't have the context in mind. But Isaiah uh, was preaching during the 700s B.C. And during that time, actually in his ministry, the Assyrians, who were the biggest, baddest force in the Middle East, in the ancient Middle East, invaded Israel. And they destroyed what was then the entire northern kingdom of Israel. So nine tribes of Israel. They, just, they took over their land. They destroyed all their cities. They sent them off into other parts of the world. And they were lost as distinct people groups. And this has happened during the lifetime of Isaiah. And these two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, which were in the north of Israel, in the land that would later become known as Galilee, the land where Jesus would grow up and begin and do most of his ministry, those lands were among the first hit by the Assyrians. They were in the northern part of Israel. They were taken over and destroyed. This is what he means by they were humbled. God humbled them by destroying them with the powerful Assyrian army. The Assyrian army was always seeking peace. They thought of themselves as the peacemakers of the ancient Middle East. They would make peace by destroying their enemies. Once there was no one else left and they were in charge of everything, there would, in fact, be peace. So Isaiah is making a very powerful prophecy and a very bold statement when he says that this land that has just been humbled, has just been destroyed by the most powerful visible force in the ancient world, will one day be honored and all nations will look to it as a source of joy, as a great place. He prophesied this 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And it has come to pass, as billions of people around the world today and this whole month are celebrating the land of Galilee, honoring it above all other places. As we move on in the text of Isaiah's prophecy here, it's very interesting what happens. In verses, starting in verse 2 and following, we see that Isaiah tells us there will be an end of war. War will be completely destroyed and annihilated. 
It will be as if the Israelites had conquered, had had a great victory. They will be rejoicing as when, uh, as at the harvest time when you bring in all the crops, or just like when an army defeats its enemy and divides up the spoils. War will be no more. But then we see something very unexpected, starting in verse 6. The reason that war is no more, the reason that the war will be over, is not because some great army or some destructive act of God has come in to destroy the enemy. The reason that there will be no more war is that a child has been born. And so we are given this very stark contrast. War has been defeated because a baby is born. War has been defeated not by violence, but war has been defeated by peace. War has been defeated by love, by what looks like the most vulnerable and defenseless thing in the world, a child, a baby, is the weapon that God chooses to use. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't remain a baby. He becomes a powerful man of God. But in many ways, his character remains childlike. He remains a man of peace, a man who is gentle. The text goes on, and Isaiah begins to give Jesus, the coming Messiah, a number of names. First, he calls him the Wonderful Counselor. This one will be not one who tells people what to do, not one who controls uh, by yelling at people or in anger, but he will be the Wonderful Counselor, the Wonderful Advisor. That is, he will be a fantastic teacher. Later we see that the nations will long for his teaching. He will show people the right way, and just based on the power of what he teaches, people will follow him, not based on his attempts to control them. Next we see that he will be the mighty God. This is remarkable that the Messiah here is called equal to God by a Jewish prophet. He will be the mighty God all-powerful, yet not one of destructive violence. The text carries on calling him the everlasting Father, the infinite, unlimited Father. A good father is a very good example for us of leadership and power exercised through love rather than through control. A good father, mind you. A good father is an example for us of power exercised through love and not through control and violence. And finally, he is called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. I think that every year we sing these words, and it sounds nice because they both start with a P, right? And I think that's the main reason that it's translated in that particular way. It rolls off the tongue nicely. But we don't think much about what it actually means. And what it means is astonishing. A ruler. 
one who will actually have the power to rule the world, but who will also be a man of peace. I submit to you that this is virtually non-existent in the world today. A ruler who does not rule through force or violence or control or manipulation. A ruler who is one of peace. The text carries on to tell us that his reign and his government will never end. It implies that it will take maybe some time, maybe a long time. His government and his rule will slowly increase, but it will never be discouraged or defeated. And that's actually where his power comes from. It is an eternal kind of power, an eternal kind of life. And as it goes on, the enemies of God will all be wiped away. Those who seek, uh, who seek after things other than God, they will be blown away like chaff. But the ones who follow after God and this Messiah himself who has this eternal kind of peace, he will carry on and never be discouraged or turned away from his purpose. And so eventually all of human life and all of human rule will be brought under his control. And it says at the end of the text that we read in verse 7, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It will not be through human power or human skills or actions that the Messiah comes to rule the world. It will be through the power and the action of God himself. And that is key. In the Bible, we have two visions of Jesus. We have one vision of Jesus as a very gentle, a very gentle man of peace. And you see a picture here of Jesus. You get these a lot. We talked about Hallmark cards yesterday, right? You get this a lot. Pictures of Jesus that have been all airbrushed and smoothed out, and he's holding a little lamb, and it's so sweet and wonderful. Brings a tear to your eye. I actually don't like pictures of Jesus like that very much, but that's just my style. But Jesus was a man who was very gentle, and we're told this again and again in Scripture. He is a gentle man of peace. And yet we're also told that he is like a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who will destroy his enemies. He is the one with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So which is it? Is Jesus a man of peace and gentleness and we can feel very safe and cuddly around him? Or is he a man who will destroy his, his enemies? A man who will rule the world? And in fact, the answer is, as we know from Scripture, that he is both. How will he be both? He will be both because it is actually his gentleness and his peace that provide the new kind of power that will eventually rule the world. Turn with me for a minute to Isaiah chapter 42. This is another section, not one we typically read at Christmas, but another section where Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah, about the one who will come and rule the world. And he says this in Isaiah 42, starting at verse 1. Here is my servant, whom I 
uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. But he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. And a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands, the nations, will put their hope. Here we see in Isaiah 42 that the Messiah will be an incredible man of peace a man of so little violence that he won't even use the force that it takes to snuff out a candle or to break off a bent weed. He will be a man who doesn't try to control anything, and yet all things will be brought under his control by the power of God's Spirit. That is, he will be a man who is so Faithful, who has so much trust in God that he will have no need to try to control anyone or force anyone to do anything. Now, if you think about it for a minute, of course this is the way that Jesus would be because this is the way that God is with you. If God were the kind of God who tried to force you to do whatever it was he thought was best with, with violence or with control, would any of us even be standing here? If God treated us by, by violence and control, we would all have been destroyed a long time ago. If he were to come down and try to make us do what he wanted, we would not stand for a moment. But he's not. He's so gentle with you. It doesn't matter. He lets people turn away from him and do all kinds of evil things, and he just lets them go with it. Eventually, if they don't turn back, it will destroy them, but he keeps on pursuing them. Come back to me. Come back to me. Turn back. This is the way to death. You're not going the right way. Please, please, please. Look at the gentleness of God. And yet in that gentleness is the true power. That's the mystery that was explained in the gospel. In that gentleness and peace is the real power. The power that is in the peacemaker, the power that is in the the gun, that power is false. It's only for a moment. The power that is there when we try to use our anger or our desire to control and manipulate someone else, that power is false. It is only there for a moment. It will be destroyed. Jesus was a man who was gentle, kind, humble, meek, and patient beyond really what we can imagine. And his faith in God is what kept him safe. His complete trust that no matter what happened to him, God was there and everything would turn out for his good. And it has. And it will. I have a relative who recently got a new job. And this job is, she's kind of working as um, an assistant or an advisor to a group of people in a, a moderately large town in the United States. 
And the group of people are all the leaders of the area. You know, the mayors of the different towns that are in the region and business leaders, CEOs of corporations that are based in the area. And it's funny, she calls them, uh, she calls them the alpha dogs. She calls them the alpha dogs. You think of a wolf pack, right? And so in a wolf pack, there's always one dog who is the leader, and every other dog defers to the alpha male, right? Um, and the alpha male is perfectly nice and gentle with everyone else unless someone doesn't do what the alpha male wants. And if that happens, the alpha male attacks until the, person, until the other dog submits, right? And so my relative calls these, uh, these leaders the alpha dogs because she says that's what it's like to be in their presence. They're perfectly nice, but they're very used to getting their own way. And if, if you were, she, she says, if I for a moment um, tried to cross them or suggested a way that they didn't want, I know that I would be immediately put in my place. This is what the leaders of our world are like for the most part. They are the alpha dogs, the ones who, maybe not always in our modern society, maybe they don't always control through violence, but through force, through manipulation, through pressure. They're going to control and run things. And that is how our world sees leadership. But Jesus is completely different than this. Think about the story where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And he says to them, the leaders of this world lord it over their followers. That is, they try to control their followers and force them to do what they want. But, you Christians, it shall not be this way among you. The one who leads among you is like a slave to everyone else, like a servant who washes the feet And he says, even me, even me, I get down and wash your feet. I mean, this is an incredible thing. It would be like one of those alpha dogs, right? The mayor of one of those towns going to his uh, secretary's house or his custodian's house and doing the dishes or cleaning the bathroom. It would be unthinkable. He's too busy for that, right? He's got too many more important things to do than that. And so for our application today... I would like to point out, as has been pointed out by uh, Dallas Willard, who is a fantastic writer and author, Christian writer and author, that today in the church, there is an epidemic of mean Christians. Mean Christians. And what he means when he says that is not so much that all Christians are mean, Uh, but that many, many Christians think that they need to force or control other people to make them do the right thing. They need to force or control other people to make them do the right thing. Each one of us has a dilemma in this life, and the dilemma is that there are other people That's the dilemma, right? And so other people don't always do what's right or what we think they should do. 
And whenever that happens, whenever someone does something that's wrong or maybe even more often doesn't do what they should do, I have a choice. And the choice that the world paints that we have is often this. Either I withdraw from them and ignore them and cut them off, or I try to make them do the right thing. Those are the only choices that our world sees. But there is another way. Early on in our marriage, Amber and I had a lot of arguments. Can you believe that? No, couldn't be. Say it ain't so. One of the things that we argued about a lot in the early days of our marriage is, um, was money. And uh, how many of you have ever had arguments in your marriage, if you're married, about money? You don't have to raise your hand. So I was the kind of guy, uh, especially before I got married, I was the kind of guy who, I mean, sometimes I would you know, eat a can of beans for dinner so that I could save money. Uh, sometimes, you know, when I was a kid, you gave me $10, and I stocked it away, and I would save it for a year. Just naturally, this is how I was. And let's just say that that's not exactly how Amber <laughs> is. Amber is very generous, and she, she loves to shop for things and to give things to people. And so it got to the point early in our marriage, I would see things that she was doing with money, and I would think, we don't have that money and my response would be, well, the, the response is that the world gives. Either I can withdraw, which I couldn't do because we're married, or I could try to control her and get her to do the right thing, as I saw it. And so, of course, that's what I tried to do. And let me tell you, it got to the point where every time we went into a store, Amber, you can, you can say amen to this because you know this is true. Every time we went into a store, for a, a period of time, we got in a fight. Every single time we went into a store. And eventually God led us through the church and through some other connections to start doing some budgeting. And that was a great thing. But really didn't fix the problem. What it did is it shifted us from fighting every day to fighting a couple of times a month. That was an improvement. But often the fights were bigger. But now, praise God, I can say, Amber and I do sometimes disagree, but there is virtually never any anger or attempt to control each other over money. And we have peace in our family over money. Actually, we have peace over almost everything. And here's how. It's simply this. It's simply the way of Jesus. There is another way to respond than the way that the world says. Either withdraw and cut them off or attack them and control them and force them to do what you think is right. And the other way, the other way is to let go and seek God. The other way is to give up your life, just like Jesus tells us to do. It's to do what he did is in that situation, when you see the other person doing wrong, you say, God, I know you are in control of everything, not me. I know that this person is your child, and I will not attempt to control them, even if they're doing the wrong thing. I will not attempt to force them or make them be what I think they should be. I will leave that to you, God, because that's your job, and you don't even try to force them most of the time. What's my job? My job is to love them, 
My job is to serve them and have the right heart toward them, and my job is to pray for them. I will get on my knees. If I see something that I think is wrong, I may oppose it, but I will forgive them for anything that they do, and I will pray, and I will pray, and I will pray, and I will pray, and I will watch you work in their life and in mine. And that way of Jesus brings peace. It is the way of peace, and it is a thousand miles away from the way of the world, the way of control and manipulation. I urge you today, for the sake of Jesus and in his name, this Advent Christmas season, I urge you to do what his followers through the ages have done, what his earliest followers did, and bind yourself to the way of Jesus. Do not allow yourself to go in the way of the world, in the way of control and manipulation, but become a man or woman of peace, one who trusts God and one who seeks God before trying to control those around them.